This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to the 297th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane so did you guys notice anything new when you downloaded the latest episode was there a different logo on your app indeed for the first time in four and a half years history ghost bump has updated our logo I'm really excited about it. I think it's gorgeous, and I think it better reflects the show that we have going on here. You've got a haunted house in the background, and if you look real close, you might even see Mord in there. There's also a raven up on the haunted house, which I absolutely adore, and there's a cemetery. So I hope you guys all really enjoy it. We have new merch up in the HGB Emporium, so you can get all kinds of things with that new logo on them. The OG will be sticking around. It's still going to be what we have on the pin that everybody gets when they come to a meetup. And I still have plenty of stickers that have the OG on them. And I'll still leave the OG logo up with products in the Emporium too, if you happen to like that better. I was inspired because I know many of you listeners listen to Hillbilly Horror Stories as well. And I saw that they had updated their logo and I really loved it. And I was like, you know, I wonder if it's time to freshen ours up a little bit. So I want to thank Jerry and Tracy for their inspiration. Now, when you're going to rebrand something, it can cost a lot of money to hire somebody to do that. I let the executive producers vote on whether we were going to go ahead and update the logo. And they're the ones who said, yeah, and let's creep it out a little bit more. And then I had a few of them actually offer to do it pro bono. I don't like asking people to do stuff for free for me. That's why we don't have a research crew here anymore, because I just didn't feel right having people doing research without me paying them. I do hope one day to have a paid staff for History Ghost Bump, but but that's obviously somewhere in the future. It's not right now. So I was going to sit down and work on doing up the logo myself. I am an artist. I'm not an artist who does all the digital stuff, but I do hand stuff. So I thought, well, maybe I can come up with something. So I did a live video in the HGB Losers Club, and I was showing everybody kind of the idea that I had and what I wanted to put behind Barnaby, our little ghost, and... A little later in the day, I get a message from Robin White and she goes, is it something like this? And I went, wow, I love it. It was a base of what the new logo looks like. I asked her if she could add a couple of other things. We took Brianne's design for more, threw that in there. Robin's spouse, Chris, added a couple of things to it. And what you see is the finished product now for the logo. And I said, I have to pay you for this. I just, I can't just have you working all day on something where I'm even asking you, can you do this? Can you add this? And Robin and Chris were like, oh no. So since they wouldn't let me pay them for them, I said, well, there's something I can do for them. They live in Newfoundland and Labrador. And the capital of that province is St. John's. 
And wouldn't you know, when I started to research it, I found out that city is haunted as all get out. So this episode is not only inspired, but also dedicated to Robin and Chris White. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. I also hope you guys stick around after the show. I know a lot of people, once we get done with the topic, you probably skip on to the next episode or to the next podcast. But I got a ton of feedback on the Battle of Passchendaele. And I hope you guys will stick around to hear some of the feedback I got on that. It was excellent. And I just love it when I get this kind of feedback because when you throw an episode out into the ether, you're like, well, I see I've gotten some downloads, so I know some people listen to it. But you really don't know if people enjoy it or not unless you hear back from them. So thank you for all the feedback I got, guys. Also have a scary experience to share from Karen. Before we get into that, we have a boatload of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Wendy with an I, Jennifer, David, Misty, Sylvia, Carrie with a K and an I, Deb, Annie with an I-E, Robin, Genevieve, Summer, Elisa, Mona, Katie with an I-E, Giselle, Denise, D with one E, Amanda, Tracy, Caitlin with an AI, Lauren, James, Suzanne with a Z and an E, Jamie, another Caitlin, this one with L-Y-N at the end, Michelle with two L's and a capital C in the middle, Samantha, Chantel, Ross, Ellie, Amber, Clarissa, Chris, Karen with a K and two R's, Karen with a C and two R's, Kelly with a Y, Marsha, Shannon with an E, and Ethan. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The year was 1966, and Birmingham, Alabama's downtown action committee decided they wanted to have an animated balloon parade to celebrate the Christmas holidays. The Macy Thanksgiving Day Parade had these huge balloon figures, and they wanted to do the same thing. They really hoped they could outdo Macy's efforts. They had plans for several blow-up balloons, many of which would be very unique, including monkeys, dogs, and serpents. It was a grand plan. There was just one teeny tiny little problem. You've seen the Macy's Parade on TV. Those balloons fly pretty high up in the air, and many stand several stories high. I remember that there have been years that the balloon wranglers on the ground have had to keep the balloons held closer to the ground because of wind. But they've never had to keep the balloons low because of power lines or traffic signals. Unfortunately for Birmingham, their overhanging power lines and traffic signals were not conducive to floating balloons. So they had to mount the balloons on platforms and wheel them along the route. The first parade was themed as Fairyland and included Peter Pan, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, and of course a vampire and Frankenstein's monster. Well, okay, I know that sounds weird, especially for Christmas, but here at HGB, that sounds mighty fine to me. Hosting a balloon parade with all the balloons wheeled down the street certainly is odd. Hello. 
Hello friends, we are the Ladies of Strange. I'm Ashley. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Rebecca. Have you ever wondered if Jenny's head really did fall off when they removed the green ribbon? Or if aliens are hiding in the tales of comets waiting to take us away? Or if there's any scientific basis to the Ouija board? Well then don't risk your search history and join us each Thursday as we discuss the history, mystery, and theory of all things questionable, odd, and eerie. New episodes are released every Thursday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. More information about the show, including show notes and links to our social media, can be found on our website, theladiesestrange.com. Keep it strange, lovelies. And now, this month in history. month of May, on the 22nd in 1884, Jim Thorpe was born. Thorpe was a member of the Sock and Fox Nation, and his Native American name was Watho Huck, which meant Bright Path. And he did have a bright path in front of him when it came to sports. Thorpe grew up in Oklahoma and attended school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he became All-American twice for the football team. He was a versatile athlete and competed in the U.S. Olympic track finals to compete in the 1912 Olympics hosted in Stockholm, Sweden, in the pentathlon and decathlon, which were being introduced for the first time. He went to the Olympics and made a record in the decathlon that would last for two decades. Thorpe won eight of the 15 individual events comprising the pentathlon and decathlon and took home the gold in both. And then things started to go downhill. He lost his gold medals because of the amateur rule in place at the time of the Olympics. Thorpe had received meager pay playing professional baseball before the Olympics, and that made him a professional. He would marry three times, two of them ending in divorce. He had eight children, one child dying in childhood. He retired from sports at 41 just as the Great Depression hit, and he could not find work. He fell into alcoholism and died in poverty at the age of 65 from heart failure. Thorpe was a victim of racism. The New York Times even ran a headline that read, Indian Thorpe and Olympiad, Redskin from Carlisle will strive for place on American team. In 1983, Thorpe's medal placement was reinstated, but not the original gold medals because they'd been stolen. His children were presented with commemorative ones. He is listed as a gold medalist by the IOC, but his 1912 results are not restored to the official Olympic record. St. John's is one of the oldest cities in North America and is found in Newfoundland and Labrador on the coast of Canada. Based on my personal experience, these oldest cities have a plethora of ghost stories. St. John's is said to be the most haunted city in Canada. There are numerous historic locations here with a haunted reputation, and we're going to look at several of them. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of St. John's. Newfoundland and Labrador are a province of Canada. Newfoundland is an island, and Labrador is a part of mainland Canada found to the east of Quebec and above Nova Scotia. There are 10 provinces in Canada, and this is the newest, having only joined in 1949. 
It was initially named Newfoundland, having been coined Newfoundland by King Henry VII after John Cabot discovered it in 1497. The name Labrador is thought to have been coined by a Portuguese explorer named Joao Fernandes. He was a landowner, which in Portuguese is Yavrador, and people started calling the coast he explored in Greenland the Labrador's Land. Labrador was once part of Greenland. The name was officially changed in 2001 to Newfoundland and Labrador. The people here are from indigenous French, Irish, and English backgrounds. And a little fun fact, on the coast of Labrador, the maritime archaic Indians left behind a burial mound that dates back 7,500 years, and this is said to be the oldest known funeral mound in North America. The capital city of the province is St. John's, and it is found in Newfoundland on the southeastern end. As I said before, this is a really old city. From the beginning, St. John's was a prominent harbor known for its fishing in the North Atlantic. The Spanish, Portuguese, Basques, French, and English all came with the British rising in power in the area. The first permanent settlers set down roots in the early 1600s with a family named Oxford building a plantation. The oldest commercial street known as Water Street was established shortly thereafter. Along this path were bars, storehouses, warehouses, and shops that drew traders, fishers, captains, naval officers, and even pirates. St. John's was a major commercial center, and for this, it became a prime location for attack. Many of these attacks started as early as the mid-1500s. The last attacks came in 1762, when the British recaptured St. John's from the French. Municipal government would be set up in 1888, and the population would rise to 30,000. Electric streetlights came along with electric streetcars. St. John's would be incorporated in 1921 and today is the financial and commercial center for Newfoundland and Labrador and, of course, the capital of the province. So many historic cities have stories of big fires. They were so common because most everything was built from wood early on. And most cities did not have great resources for fighting fires. You didn't have fire hydrants around. And in a lot of cities, you didn't even have a fire department. It was just a bunch of volunteers who would come running. St. John's had several big fires and then a great fire. The Great Fire of 1892 broke out on July 8th and was the worst disaster to ever hit the city of St. John's. On that fateful day, a strong wind was blowing out of the northwest, and the city was extremely dry as there had been little rain for days. Work on the water main made the water pressure insufficient. It was the perfect conditions for a fire, and one was about to start. At the top of Carter's Field on Freshwater Road stood Timothy Brine's stable. A pipe was dropped there, and although a pipe is a small thing, the stable lit up. It was around 4.45 in the afternoon. The relatively small fire did not initially cause alarm, but since the conditions were ripe, the fire quickly spread. Once the residents realized they would not be able to contain the fire, they decided to use their energy to move their valuables to stone buildings, which they thought would be protective. Obviously, that was not the case. One of these locations was the Anglican Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Description of what happened to the cathedral reads, With one fearful rush, the demonic fire seized upon the doomed cathedral, and sooner than tongue could tell the immense edifice, a gem of Gothic architecture, the masterpiece of Sir Gilbert Scott, and the pride of every Newfoundlander was a seething mass of flame. With a crash, heard even above the din of the elements, the roof fell in, and the result of the labors and offerings of thousands for many years vanished in a cloud of smoke and dust. So everybody lost everything. The fire ravaged the business district along Water Street and Duckworth Street. 
The cries of terror from women and children and the frantic attempts to quench the flames did not end until the next morning. As the smoke cleared, the residents were able to see the destruction. Few walls stood, and those that did were tottering. Chimneys stood as the last remnants of homes. There was $13 million in losses, with very little covered by insurance. Money from Britain, the United States, and the rest of Canada poured in, and St. John's rebuilt. Most of the old buildings here date back to this time and have a Second Empire styling. That's why so many have mansard roofs with bonnet-topped dormers. And I just love, love, love that style. It is such cool architecture. St. John's is the city of legends. Many of the buildings in this city have ghost stories attached to them, and I'm going to share many of them with you. So put on your walking shoes. Let's go see Haunted St. John's. Duckworth Street. This has got to be one of the most haunted streets in all of the city. All of the places that I looked at on here were just haunted as all get out. I could not believe how many haunted locations were along this street. It reminded me of the episode I just did on Derby Street in Salem. As I mentioned, the businesses along Duckworth Street were devastated by the Great Fire. Our first stop is at 290 Duckworth Street at the corner of Cathedral Street. The building is large, standing four stories tall, with the back of the building curving up a hill. This was originally a doctor's office that was much like a hospital because surgeries were conducted here. Later, it would run as a funeral parlor and then the Victoria Station Inn. More recently, it went through a series of restaurants, Chase Brienne, The Vinyl Room, and The Reluctant Chef, which is now closed. Last I saw, I was checking into this Reluctant Chef, and I found newspaper articles about how it was closing. All I could find about the property now is that it's listed as a rental for office space. Paranormal experiences include some really creepy apparitions. One is a woman who seems to be sporting her autopsy scars, and another is a young woman whom is paralyzed with coins over her eyes. So I would say that both of those date back to the time when this was a funeral parlor. Next, we're going to head over to the Duke of Duckworth. This is said to be the best pub in town. The pub has been in business for 25 years and is located at 325 Duckworth Street. Not only did I hear that it's the best pub in town, I've heard that they have the best fish and chips in town also. I also have a spirit here that has been affectionately named the Duke, and it's not John Wayne. I'm not sure why they call him that. I couldn't find any stories about who this would be, why he's here, how he died. Not sure about any of it, but they've decided to call him the Duke. He seems to be friendly and is usually seen as an apparition looking out the window and waving. A local artist painted a picture of this and it can be seen hanging in the pub. Staff members claim that he has other antics like moving glasses and hiding things. So you can go for a pint and maybe even have a specter to share it with. Next, we have the Anglican Cathedral of St. John the Baptist and the graveyard that's there on Churchill. The Anglican Cathedral of St. John the Baptist is the oldest Anglican cathedral in all of Canada and can be found at 16 Church Hill. The Anglican parish was originally established all the way back in 1699. The first stone church was built in 1843 and was heavily damaged during the Great Fire of 1892. It took 10 years to repair the damage. 
Disembodied voices are heard within the cathedral. The ghost of a young stoneworker who'd helped with repairing the cathedral is said to haunt the church. He fell to his death from some scaffolding. Many people think that he's been unable to leave his work unfinished. Many of his co-workers saw his ghost around the job site as they continued to do the refurbishment. Even more shocking, in an 1850 picture that was taken of all the workmen after they'd repaired the nave, he seems to appear as a ghost. They're all wearing their Sunday finest, and they're standing in front of the cathedral, and then on the far left is what looks like a faded figure. And people claim that this is the deceased man showing up in the picture wearing his work clothes. And I have put that picture up on Instagram, so let me know what you think. Is it just that side of the picture's a bit faded? Is it just that he didn't get the memo that he shouldn't be wearing his work clothes? Or is this the ghost of the young man who lost his life while fixing the cathedral that they're all standing in front of? South of the church is the Anglican Cathedral Graveyard. There are tales of apparitions seen floating around the cemetery. There's a legend here about a man who refused to be buried. This man was believed to be a merchant who'd sailed into St. John's. His body was found in a downtown lane in the late 1800s. He was brought to the Anglican Cemetery for burial because nobody knew who he was, so who's going to pay for it? He's a charity case. Throw him in the church's graveyard. His casket was lowered into the grave, but about halfway through, the gravediggers heard a knocking coming from the coffin. They quickly shoveled out the dirt and called the doctor. He came and declared that the man was indeed dead, so they started to bury him again. The knocking was heard again. They repeated the process of unburying the man and having a doctor check him again. He was pronounced dead once again, and the reburial began with the doctor standing by. The knocking happened again, but the doctor refused to let the men unbury the deceased man, and the knocking eventually stopped. Strange knocking sounds are heard in the cemetery to this day. Now I'm going to tell you a little legend about the captain of Queen's Road. This legend dates back to 1740. There was a captain of a ship who made regular rounds between England and Newfoundland, and he'd taken up with a woman who lived along Queen's Road in a home later owned by a man named Samuel Pettyham. The captain did not know that he was not the only suitor of this woman. She had a jealous lover, and one night he ambushed the captain and killed him, and then he beheaded the captain with a sword. The captain's ghost is now said to be seen along the area where he was killed, and he appears headless. The first person to report the tale was Samuel Pettingham, all those centuries ago. Apparently what happened is Samuel was on his way home in his carriage, and for some reason he decided that he didn't want to ride in the carriage anymore. I don't know if they had a wheel issue, a horse issue, if it got stuck somewhere. I'm not sure, but he decided that he wanted to walk the rest of the way home. And as he got closer and closer to his house, he noticed this figure in front of the house. Then he could see that it clearly did not have a head, and he ran away in terror. And that is where this legend got started. The Majestic Theater is inside a building nicknamed the Flatiron Building on 390 Duckworth Street. Theaters already have a pretty haunted reputation, but imagine one built over an area that had been used for hangings. This is what we have going on here. The building was constructed in 1918. It was refurbished and reopened in 2017, and then it promptly caught fire. I'm sure the insurance company absolutely loved that. I'm not sure if it's even open right now because when I tried to look up something on the Majestic Theater, there was no website, which to me is very weird that a theater wouldn't have its own website. And then when I looked on all the ticket buying websites, there were no events going on at the Majestic Theater. Is somebody in the area, Robin, Chris, or anybody else who lives 
somewhere in St. John's? Is the Majestic Theater open? Regardless of whether it's open or not, it definitely has something going on here. Workers and patrons claim that they've heard disembodied cries of men, probably those who were hanged. Their moans have also been heard, and there is poltergeist-like activity. Christian's Pub is our next stop, and this is located at 23 George Street, and it is the oldest pub on George Street. I'm not sure what getting screeched in is, but apparently Newfoundlers know, and this is what this pub is known for. So you know, if I don't know what something is, I have to jump down that rabbit hole and find out. Because I was like, what is all this stuff they're talking about? A screeching, screeching ceremony? What, do they all stand on the bar and yell at each other? Do they pretend they're birds? I just couldn't figure out what in the hell is a screeching ceremony. Well, apparently, if you are not a native of Newfoundland, the screeching ceremony makes you an honorary Newfoundlander. Most ceremonies include a sou'wester. And for those that don't know what that is, it's one of those collapsible oilskin rain hats. You know, when you're thinking of a captain on a ship, there's all this rain coming down and he's wearing the coat and he's got that hat on that's got the brim and everything and it's kind of flipped up. I think you all know what I'm talking about. You put one of those on your head. You answer the question, is ye an honorary Newfoundlander? With the proper answer, deed I is, me old cock, and long may your big jib draw. And then you get to kiss a cod. Yes, you heard that right. You get to kiss a fish. And it's not a little fish. It's a big fish. And there are even some places that have you kiss the butt end of a puffin. But in most of the pictures that I saw of screeching ceremonies, it looked like everybody was kissing fish. And as a matter of fact, Christian's Pub has a picture of Anthony Bourdain going through the process. So before he passed away, he made a stop at Christian's Pub and he got screeched in. They have one ghost here and they've named her Maggie. Nobody knows exactly who she is or why she's there, but she can be rather rowdy. And she is so rowdy sometimes that she's actually damaged some of the bar equipment. So I don't know if she enjoys watching the screeching ceremonies or not, but she definitely seems to have a bit of a temper. My suggestion to you is if you're ever in St. John's, you've definitely got to go over to Christian's Pub and get screeched in. And make sure you get there 30 minutes before the ceremony. They usually do a couple a day, but you want to get there early to make sure that you get it done. And it is going to cost you about 20 bucks. So it's not cheap, but it sounds like a lot of fun. And one of those things in life that you just have to do, you know, a bucket list item. So if I ever make my way up there, I'll definitely be doing that. Up next, we have the Masonic Temple. This is three stories tall and can be found on Cathedral Street. The Masons had a group in Newfoundland beginning in 1746 when the Grand Lodge of Boston issued them a Freemasonry warrant, but they had no place of their own. They would meet at various places around the city. Their first official home would be a wooden structure on Long's Hill that was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1892. The temple was built in 1894, which is why it is of Victorian design. It was constructed from large red bricks imported from Accrington and features multiple pediments, pilasters, and freestanding columns. The cornerstone was laid on August 23, 1894 in a Masonic ceremony led by Sir William Whiteway, a former Newfoundland prime minister who served for 17 years, and he built the Newfoundland Railway. The building was consecrated by the Masonic Order in 1896. Sir John Chalker Crosby donated a large amount of money in 1916, and those funds were used to buy a large and beautiful pipe organ that decorates the main room. There are also paintings in the main room of White Way and an engineer named Alexander McKay. He developed the telegraphic and electrical systems in Newfoundland. The Masons used the building until 2007, and then they sold the structure. 
The Spirit of Newfoundland owns the building now and hosts dinner shows and other artistic endeavors. The temple was added to the registered heritage structure by the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador in April 1995. There are several ghost stories told here. One involves a caretaker who claims he was looking for his phone when he backed into someone, or what he thought was someone. He turned and found no one. Another story was experienced after the Spirit of Newfoundland Theater Group took over the building. The delivery driver was bringing boxes of legal files into the building. He went to the top of the landing of some stairs and found a man whom he asked for directions as to where to put the boxes. The man gazed at him for a minute and then disappeared. That delivery driver ran out of the building. The man seen by the delivery driver has been seen by others and he always disappears. Pipe organ in the main room occasionally has music emanating from it when no one is playing it. And disembodied voices are also heard. Another experience happened during a wedding held in the building in 1999. A man who was a high-ranking member of the Masons had passed away a little bit before the wedding. The wedding was his grandson's, and at the start of the ceremony, the presiding judge came into the room where the wedding was taking place with a lit candle. He got halfway to the bride and groom when the candle went out. He returned to the doorway, lit the candle, and started forward again. The candle went out at the halfway point once again. He decided to just carry on, and the wedding continued. One of the guests pointed out that two pictures of the groom's grandfather hung on opposite sides of the wall of the room, and this was the same spot where the candles went out. So was Grandpa saying he didn't approve of the wedding? I'm not sure. The Newman Wine Vaults. These were built in the early 19th century and consisted of two brick and stone wine cellars. The name comes from the owner, an English firm named Newman and Company. Their specialty was port wine. Today, the wine vault is a museum. There's unexplained stuff going on here with the two main specters belonging to what people say is an African slave and a child. These spirits pinch people and occasionally get more aggressive and shove people. There's photographic evidence too. During a wedding photo shoot in the vault, a mysterious figure appears. And I did try to find that picture somewhere and I was unable to. But if I do, you'll be sure I'll put it up on Instagram. The Grace Hospital Nursing Residence. This was built in 1923 and opened in September as the first maternity hospital in Newfoundland and was opened by the Salvation Army. It had 100 beds and soon served as a second nursing school in Newfoundland. The hospital was expanded over the years and eventually grew to 200 beds. It was open until the year 2000 and then it was left abandoned. Much of it's been demolished, save for the nursing residents. And it is this building that is said to be very haunted. People who live near the property claim to see strange lights and apparitions. Strange noises come from the building as well. When the buildings were being demolished, a member of the demolition crew claimed that he saw someone peeking around door frames at him while he worked. He would just see this thing out of the corner of his eye. You know, you hear that story from lots of people. Many of you have probably experienced that as well. You just kind of see something weird out of the corner of your eye. It seems like there's somebody standing there, but there's nobody standing next to you. So why are you seeing something standing next to you out of the corner of your eye? One of the times when he sees this thing out of the corner of his eye, he manages to catch a better glimpse of it. And he was convinced that it was a little boy. 
So he decided to go find the child because he was not supposed to be here. Obviously, if you're working on demolishing the building, you don't want anybody in the building, especially a child. He didn't see him anywhere. So he went back to work, but then he saw the child again. And he described it as the child seemed to be floating and he disappeared through a doorway. And he was positive that he had been wearing a hospital gown. He never did see him again and couldn't find him anywhere, which led him to conclude that it must have been a ghost. A nursing student had gone home on break from his classes at the university, and his home was near the Old Grace Hospital parking lot. He awoke at 4 a.m. to a terrifying sound, and when he looked out his window, he saw something terrifying. A figure was walking in the parking lot, but it had no legs. There was nothing below the torso. The noise he heard was a mournful call that the creature or thing would make every few minutes. It would walk around and then stop, lift its head to the sky, and wail. The figure stopped after about 15 minutes and walked towards the building, where it then disappeared. On a winter day, a nurse was leaving her shift at the hospital when she saw a woman walking toward the back of the hospital. She was worried about the woman because she was not wearing a coat, and it was definitely very cold out. She also wondered if she was a patient because she didn't recognize her as a member of the nursing staff. She followed her around a corner but could not see her anywhere. She followed the footprints in the snow and found that they stopped right in front of a solid brick wall. The woman was nowhere, and she clearly had not walked anywhere else unless she'd flown. Can't imagine how terrifying that would be to be like, uh, ma'am, ma'am, do you need a coat? And then you see that whatever this was had to have walked through this wall, or she disappeared somewhere. The LPSU Hall, at the corner of Duckworth Street and Prescott Street, there's a mural of a young man named Fred Gamberg. It's a memorial to him. On July 10, 1995, he was just 24 years old when he slipped from a cliff in Flat Rock, Newfoundland, and drowned in the North Atlantic. He was a fixture at LPSU Hall, working as a maintenance man and putting together music shows. He is said to haunt the building that can be seen behind the mural, and this is LPSU Hall, a three-storied timber-framed building. It's said that this is one of the most haunted buildings on one of St. John's most haunted streets. The building sits at 3 Victoria Street. This originally was home to the First Congressional Church of Newfoundland, which was built there in 1789. A fire destroyed it in 1817. Another church was built in its place, this time an ecumenical one. This one was also burned up in a fire, the Great Fire of 1892. The land was bought by the Sons of Temperance, and they built their Temperance Hall there in 1893. They promoted abstinence from alcohol. They didn't stay long and sold to the Longshoremen's Protective Union in 1912, and that's why this is called LPSU Hall, Longshoremen's Protective Union. They renovated the building mostly on the inside. The exterior looks much the same as it did in the early 1900s. In 1976, the Resource Foundation for the Arts bought the hall and transformed it into the Resource Center for the Arts. It has twice been renovated since, once in 1984 and most recently in 2008, and it's mostly used as a theater and art center. There are several ghost stories here, and why not, since here we have another theater and we know how haunted those places can be. Strange sounds are a main part of the haunting. 
There are disembodied footsteps and and then sounds with no reasonable explanation, like things clattering to the ground. But then when people run to see what fell to the ground or got tossed to the ground, they find nothing on the floor. And then there are the dark shadow figures that appear and disappear throughout the hall. I mentioned Fred, you know, the one they made the mural of. Reports of a young male ghost being spotted in the main theater sitting in seats started in 1995, right after Fred's death. A young woman was sitting next to him and she noticed that he was really enjoying the show. When the show was over, she turned to him to ask what he thought. And when the lights came up, he completely disappeared before her eyes. She couldn't believe the seat was empty next to her. When she described the man later, people said that it sounded like Fred. And many people have seen him since then as well. The new courthouse has a legend that goes with it. This is the legend of Catherine Snow. accused of murdering her husband and was hanged from the window of the old courthouse on July 21st, 1834. She was the last woman hanged in Newfoundland. Perhaps she haunts the location because she was actually innocent. Catherine Mandeville was born in Harbor Grace, Newfoundland around 1793 and she eventually married John Snow and they had seven children. The marriage was not a happy one and the couple fought often with some fights getting really violent. When John disappeared in August of 1833, people immediately started whispering that Catherine had done something to him. Dried blood was found on John Snow's Salmon Cove Wharf. The police arrested two men right away. One was Tobias Mandeville, who was Catherine's cousin and was reputedly carrying on an affair with her, and the other was Arthur Spring, a household servant. Catherine ran for the woods when she heard about the arrest, but eventually turned herself in. Spring confessed and said that the three of them had shot John and threw his body in the Atlantic Ocean. Catherine denied having anything to do with the crime, and even though there was no evidence she had anything to do with it, she was convicted by a three-man jury and condemned to hang. Mandeville and Spring were hanged a few days later. But Catherine was pregnant, so they waited until she birthed and nursed the baby for a while before hanging her before a large crowd. Before dying, she said, I was a wretched woman but I am as innocent of any participation in the crime of murder as an unborn child. Several days after the execution, Catherine's ghost started showing up in the courthouse and outside where she'd been hanged. Cemetery where she's buried also has had sightings. Local newspapers even reported the sightings. They were so numerous and believable. The old courthouse burned down in 1846, but this didn't stop Catherine. She was seen during the reconstruction, and when the new building opened in 1847, her ghost was there again. The Great Fire of 1892 destroyed the courthouse yet again. It was rebuilt again in 1902, and Catherine's ghost was there again. Her spirit is seen throughout the building, and people claim that phantom footsteps belong to her. The elevator goes up and down on its own as well. St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church was built in 1893 where the old Catholic cemetery had been, and there's no record that bodies were moved, including that of Catherine Snow. See, she had been buried in the old Catholic cemetery after she was hanged, so they put this church there and didn't bother to move the bodies. So perhaps that's why her spirit walks the grounds of the church there, too. In 2012, nearly 200 years after she was tried and hanged, the case was reopened by the Newfoundland Historical Society, and Catherine was given a new trial. 
Two Supreme Court justices, Carl Thompson and Seamus O'Regan, sat in on the case, and the defense lawyer was Rosalind Sullivan. 460 people sat in the audience and served as jury. Catherine was exonerated, but that hasn't diminished the activity. So even though they did something to try to tell her, hey, we think you're innocent, she's still not very happy, apparently, and still walking around and anger and fussing and all that good stuff there at the new courthouse. There are four stone houses along Temperate Street at addresses 31 to 37 that were built by Samuel Garrett. They are formally called the Samuel Garrett Houses, but everybody refers to them as the Four Sisters. Garrett built the homes over 10 years, starting in 1893, to give to his four daughters as wedding gifts. Only two daughters would live in the houses. His daughter Mary died at 24 years old. His daughter Eliza never married and stayed at his home with him. Daughter Loretta moved into number 35 with her husband in 1901, and daughter Emily moved into number 37. Two of Garrett's grandchildren eventually would move into 31 and 33 when they were old enough. The houses were designated registered heritage structures in 1988. There is a female ghost here. A family rented one of the homes and encountered this spirit. It began with their young daughter screaming and crying at night. She would tell her parents that she was visited by a woman who frightened her. Over time, the cries and screams stopped because the girl got used to the nightly visits and even started laughing and talking with the woman. People who passed by the homes claimed to see a woman watching them from the window and sometimes even waving. And then she disappears. Others who've lived in the homes claim that a female ghost appears and then slides across the floor, passing through a wall. She will then sometimes appear in the house next door to where she's passed through. The reason for this is thought to be that this is a residual haunting, and since the houses were once connected by doors, she's just walking through the doors rather than a wall. The father wanted to make it easy for the sisters to visit each other, so that's why he put these connecting doors. I love my sister, but I don't know that I'd want to have a connecting door to her house. <laughs> Just saying. People claim to hear strange noises and to see ghostly lights coming from a tunnel that runs underneath the homes. The tunnel's thought to have once carried water from a lake that is 1.5 kilometers away. When the buildings were abandoned, squatters claimed to have had several haunting experiences here and made videos of the experiences that they put up on YouTube. I haven't bothered to search for those, but I encourage you guys, if you want to, look up Hauntings at the Four Sisters and see if you can find any of those videos on YouTube. There are hundreds of years of history here in St. John's. The buildings are beautiful architecture, and each with its own special history. I've shared just a bit of that history with you here. Do these locations have ghosts walking around and continuing on in the afterlife? Are these buildings in St. John's haunted? That is for you to decide. Of course, they do have ghost tours going on in St. John's. One of the interesting ones that I found, and one of the more well-known ones that's award-winning, is St. John's Haunted Hike, which you can find at hauntedhike.com. And you can find our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And boy, did I get feedback on the Battle of Passchendaele. First, I heard from Robin White, who this episode is actually dedicated to. She said, in the theme of the recent episode, she saw these at a recent visit at their provincial museum, and they're called Death Pennies. One of these memorial plaques, which are about the size of a dessert plate, were sent to each family that lost a loved one who served in World War I in service of the British Empire. Each quote-unquote penny has the soldier's name without their rank, as all are equal in their death and sacrifice. 
She said it was eerie to see a wall of these, some shiny, some not, and they call it a penny for a life. And I find it unique that they call them a penny. I guess it's because they're kind of like the color of a penny, but they're fairly large. Like she described it, they're about the size of a dessert plate. So interesting that they call them pennies, but it was very cool. I encourage you guys to Google that and get a look at that. I'll also see if I can find some pictures to put up on Instagram. Suzanne Silk said, love the recent podcast episode. Wanted to share this with everyone. I have this poppy from England. It was planted around the Tower of London to remember the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I. Each handmade poppy represented a fallen British soldier. I highly recommend searching for pictures of the poppies around the Tower of London. It'll give you goosebumps. And then she also said there's an amazing American woman who we need to remember, Moyna Bell Michael, a school teacher from Good Hope, Georgia. She was inspired by the poem, which is in Flanders Fields, and worked almost single-handedly to make the poppy a symbol for fallen soldiers. Every year, Good Hope, Georgia, not far from Athens, has a poppy festival. Give her a Google. There was also a U.S. stamp and a children's book that have been dedicated to her. And Cheyenne Maddie said, Diane, as a Canadian, I almost exclusively think of poppies as a flower of remembrance. Ten years out of high school, I can remember Lieutenant Colonel McRae's poem pretty much word for word. And I thought that was great. I hope they're teaching in Flanders Fields in the schools because it's really something that our young people need to keep in their minds. Because as we all know, it's not just a cliche or a saying, if we forget history, we tend to repeat it. It really is true. People will repeat history if you don't remember some of the negative things that have happened. And Rick sent me an email. He said, Hi, Diane. That your episode on the Battle of Passchendaele came out on April 25th was quite apt, at least here, as this is the date Australia and New Zealand remember our war dead, Anzac Day. It has its beginnings in World War I when the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, Anzac, was a small part of a largely British and French landing at Gallipoli in Turkey in 1915. They remained pinned down on the beachhead for seven months, achieving nothing but the deaths of tens of thousands on both sides. They were eventually evacuated in December, moving as quietly as possible and using various subterfuges to trick the Turks into believing that they were still there. Legend has it that as a group of soldiers were marching down to the boats, cloth bound around their boots so that the Turks wouldn't hear their footsteps, they passed one of the burial sites of the men who had died during this fruitless campaign. One soldier is said to have whispered, I hope they don't hear us. My grandmother, who grew up during World War I, she told me once of being sent to the butchers to buy some German sausage, and the butcher flatly refused to admit he had such a thing, though she could plainly see it hanging on a hook, was very superstitious. One day, a photo of my niece, my grandmother's great-granddaughter, fell over. My grandmother freaked out, seeing it as an omen of coming tragedy. Fortunately, it was not, but it was then we heard the story of how the photo of a friend of my grandmother's, who was away at the war, had fallen from a shelf and onto his chair the day he was killed in action. 60 years later, she still remembered. What an amazing story there. And pretty eerie that his picture would fall over on the day that he died. Thanks for sending that, Rick. And then Steve had a really cool theory that he wanted to toss out to me, and I'm going to share it with you guys. One of the ghost stories that were connected to the Battle of Passchendaele were those white men on white horses that were fighting against the Germans. He said, just as I was listening to you describing what the German colonel reported reminded me of paladins who, to my knowledge, were originally religious warriors and were described as white horseback knights. Could it be they saw spirits of paladins? That is for you to decide. It had never occurred to me. And at first I was like, 
what is a paladin? I wasn't sure. So I looked it up and a paladin was basically a holy warrior, a religious warrior as he described it. Something to kind of give you an image for it would be something like the Knights Templar, uh, the Knights of the Round Table, something like that. That's what a, a paladin would be. And he also said, if part of the land was sacred, like a graveyard, church, or chapel where a paladin was buried, the digging of the trenches or explosion caused by bombs could disturb the spiritual energy. So maybe they disturbed something that was connected to the land. Or as I said, you know, maybe they felt this. I believe that a lot of the energy that you had coming off of these Germans would be evil. You know, when you go in and just try to take over countries and conquer people, it's not really what I would call a good energy. So I wonder if they were fighting back against that or if they felt claim to the land and didn't want these Germans or Prussians or whatever they might have interpreted them as coming into their land. So thank you, Steve, for sharing that theory. I want to thank Michelle for your email. Greatly appreciated that. And I wanted to thank Kate for your email. Greatly appreciated. Now I heard from Karen, and she sent me a pretty creepy experience that I wanted to share with you guys. Karen had said, One Christmas Eve, one of my daughters and I were walking down the street delivering neighbor Christmas gifts. This was out in the country in far west Utah, just about 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City. Later when I looked at the photos, I noticed this mist in one of them. It was very cold that night, but not foggy that I could see. I just thought the mist was the flash reflecting on the moisture in the air, which it could be. But we did, for a short time, have a few paranormal events take place in our home. One being that our 8-year-old daughter saw a woman in our living room and came downstairs to ask me who she was. She described her, but she didn't have a face. I assured her that there was no one there except us. We had no visitors. She insisted and took me up to show me. As we walked up the stairs, she pointed to her and said, There, she's right there. I couldn't see her. Needless to say, she slept with us that night. There was a lot more, and we actually built the house and were the first owners. And then she showed me the picture. And uh, I can post a picture up on Instagram, see what you guys think. I kind of got a feeling that since it was cold and there's a llama in the picture, that maybe it was just some kind of breath, something like that. I wasn't sure. But I wanted more details about this story. I'm like, a woman without a face? Oh, my gosh. So she gave me some more details. She said, she's now 40, and we just talked about this a few days ago. She remembers it vividly. I was downstairs with the other children, and I was playing the piano. Kendra was with us at the time, but she went upstairs to get a drink of water. She walked up the stairs and then passed the living room to go into the kitchen to get a drink. As she passed the living room on her right, she saw this woman, who she said had medium-length blonde hair, a lavender blouse and a dark pencil skirt, but she said her face was blurry. Then she came back downstairs. She then asked me who the lady in our living room was. I told her no one else was in the house. She said, yes, there is. She's upstairs. So we all walked up the stairs together and she pointed to her and said, there she is. She said the lady walked from the window toward us. I then turned the lights up and then Kendra said she was gone. That's the only encounter with her or at least no one ever saw her again. Remember back in the days before cell phones? We had the phones that when you took it off the receiver after a couple of minutes, it would start making a beeping noise to let you know the phone was off the hook. It would only beep for a couple of minutes, then just go blank. We had probably 10 different times when the phone was taken off the hook and set ajar just enough that it was off the hook. This would happen in the night when my husband and I were in bed reading before we went to sleep. No kids up or awake. I found this alarming because after a couple of minutes, that beeping noise would stop if he didn't put the phone back on the receiver. So I know someone did it when no one was in that room. One time we just put the kids in the car and were heading out to Yellowstone National Park. We'd had the girls in the car for at least 15 minutes before we pulled out. We got down the street a ways and I remembered I'd forgotten something important. 
So we turned back. I unlocked the door, went in, and the phone was off the receiver, making the beeping noise it makes for the first couple of minutes. No one had been in the house for at least 15 minutes. We had a lamp that would turn on by itself a lot and lights and TV down in the basement that came on by themselves. Then one day it just all stopped. We lived there for 26 years. I had no idea what that was about. I never felt anything evil. Well, thanks for sharing that, Karen. And I said, you know, just because you live in a new house doesn't mean you're not going to have hauntings because it all has to do with, number one, the land that's there. Number two, maybe there was something there before the house, another house, or, you know, sometimes we bring things home with us that attach to us or could be attached to things that we get, possibly an antique that you bring home or something of that nature. We have another member of the Spooktacular crew who's also an executive producer of the show, and he shared that he's got a clock radio that has, you know, the digital readout that's in the red, and he posted a video, and it's keeping a very weird time, like really sped up, and there's really no reason for it to have sped up, and he said he'd brought home a few things that might have something going on with them that could possibly have attachments. So is that causing his clock radio, which had been working just fine, to all of a sudden start going crazy? want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. And boy, do we have a lot to welcome into the cemetery. But before we welcome people into the cemetery, I do want to thank Monica Sosa, Michelle Nelson, and Catherine Moulton, all for your one-time donations. Those make a huge difference around here. And even though we can't bury you in the cemetery, I make sure to send you all out folders of bonus casts as a thank you. So I hope you guys enjoy those. And now we'll go ahead and welcome into the cemetery. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. All of these individuals are going to be getting an obelisk headstone. Mona Von Petersdorf, Summer Nance, and Tina Norman. And thank you to Preston Headley who raised his donation up. So we're going to be moving you underneath an obelisk headstone. And then chest tombs we have set up for Johnny Kuntz, Jennifer Crook, Gail Frederick, Maria Mancini Brulliard, Karen Sanders, and Catherine Greer. Want to thank you all for signing up. It's what keeps this show going. And when we have that many people who are stepping up, it gives me great hope that I will eventually be back up to doing this podcast as a weekly podcast again, which is what I really, really would love to do. All right, Mort, we've got a few more eulogies for you to do. Take it away, big guy. Eulogies by Mort. Donna Green had been a photographer, but to her camera she cannot return. She had lived in the state of New York. She was good, so she won't meet Mr. Pitchfork. Collins Chap lived in the Keystone State. He thought horror stories were great. He was a fan of horror and science fiction. This eulogy is like his benediction. History Weeb's podcast has supported us a long time. Tim and Chuck are okay. But Brandy is divine. Adding this trio from Ohio is going to make the cemetery psycho. Kelly and Wallace have been a neighbor of our host. 
She always said she didn't want to see a ghost. She was great at growing a garden, but that won't get her a death pardon. The next eulogy is for Tamri Buckley. She has a burial plot that is lovely. It's right next to a tulip tree, which will remind her of Tennessee. This is a eulogy for Melissa Potter. Now that she is going to be a rotter, she loved ghost books and was a sweet woman. Unfortunately, now she is something I would call inhuman. This little verse is for Ariel Schroeder. I brought some flowers to stifle the odor. She had supported HGB for over a year, which makes me want to cheer. Ra, ra, we. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.